0: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the podcast. Uh, It's episode 120, and this is an interview I did with a physician's assistant named Melissa in Washington State, recorded on February 15th. So got some interesting information here that she's going to share with us, but uh, no further ado. Let's get this show on the road. Here we go.
1: Hello?
0: Hey, Melissa. Can you hear me okay?
2: Yes, I can.
0: Right on. I just want to make sure before we start, you're in a good spot. Uh... Yep, I'm,
2: I'm pulled over at, uh, at Fred Meyer. So.
0: Right on. Well, welcome to the show. And, uh, you know, we talked about a week ago over the phone about some of your experiences uh, within the healthcare system here in Washington State. And I just wanted to kind of go over uh, your background and a little bit of your story again. So maybe you could share uh, a little bit of that with the audience right now.
2: Sure. Yeah. So my background in healthcare in general, um, I started out years ago as an EMT. And then I became a paramedic, worked as a firefighter paramedic for several years and decided that I wanted to advance more um, in the healthcare area where patient care was the focus. Uh, although I enjoyed being a, a firefighter, I really wanted to focus on patient care. So I went to school to become a physician assistant and have been working as a PA now for almost 10 years.
0: Right on. So you've seen uh, your fair share of things uh, since COVID has broken out. Um, you were kind of sharing a story with me over the phone about uh, just kind of the corruption that you've seen within uh, the healthcare uh, organization that you were working for. Um, can you tell me a little about about what kind of like triggered you to set some alarms off to kind of start talking about what's happening in the healthcare system?
2: Absolutely. So I've kind of been vocal since the beginning when uh, we first started having to deal with COVID. Obviously, uh, over the years of me being in healthcare, the only times that we would ever really wear masks and gloves and gowns is when people were pretty sick or if if we ourselves as providers were sick. And I actually remember in my training that they said that you come to work sick, it doesn't matter, your patients come first. And I just kind of chuckled to myself thinking, well, I guess that's the sacrifice it it, it takes to be a healthcare provider. And then I started realizing um, the forced masks. And I was like, well, wait a second, because people aren't sick. And why are we having to wear masks? I get it as healthcare providers wearing a mask in front of patients to just to kind of decrease any transmission there. But it, it was starting to become alarming at the very beginning when everybody had to wear a mask because I immediately started wondering why. So that was where I first started having my questions in regards to
0: the corruption. Sure. I was wondering why we weren't wearing gloves.
2: Yes, um, and then not just gloves, but then they started making us wear the the eye protection, and it was kind of humorous when we're watching the news and the top the type of uh, PPE that it's being that's being shown is pretty significant, and we're given blue plastic gowns with skin exposed. And even if we are wearing gloves, I mean, there's our, our faces exposed, our hairs exposed. It, it, it didn't make sense if we're dealing with a severe virulent virus that they're telling us it, it is. Why are we not getting the proper PPE and why are we being allowed to use these flimsy material and being told that we have to wear the same mask over and over which that never. Had happened before. You wear a mask, one mask, one patient, and immediately it goes in the garbage. And so the fact that they were telling us to reuse our our masks, that was another big red flag for me because I said, this isn't safe. We should not be reusing these masks and going patient to patient in the same mask. It should be a different one every time.
0: Now, they, <clears throat> the government told us that there was a, a shortage. You mentioned the you know, the the equipment and the the PPE that uh, there was a government shortage. Did you notice any shortages within your, at least within your health court, healthcare organization?
2: So we were told that there were shortages. And at one point there was even people coming into our clinic and removing the masks that we had telling us that we weren't allowed to wear those. And I was really confused because I was, Yes, I, I was thinking to myself, why are they taking away the, the tools that we do have? If there is a shortage, why not just use what we have and then being told that we had to reuse stuff? And actually, at one point, um, my husband ended up giving me an, a 95 from his work, and I had to keep it in a Tupperware so that I could preserve it because I didn't know if I was going to get another one. Right. Um yeah so it was i mean when they say shortage but then they're taking away our supplies it just makes me wonder where the shortage actually was or if this was a manufactured shortage Um, within the system not the manufacturers but if they've created their own shortage for an underlying reason and if they told us these need to go to the hospitals and I'm thinking well we're seeing patients just as much and we have a respiratory clinic so why are we getting our supplies taken away from us and being told to reuse what we have so i was extremely um concerned and conflicted and had many questions when they did that
0: yeah you think you know for a <clears throat> flesh eating virus like you know covid-19 we'd be wearing like hazmat suits or something like that but instead it was like here you can make a mask out of cloth out of you know whatever you have um,
2: right. Didn't make- well, and the interesting thing about that, and um, honestly, uh, two years before COVID came out, we had some education about the Ebola virus, and we have a jump kit that has all of these things. And I just kept thinking to myself, we have a jump kit sitting in the other room that has all of these PPEs and the the higher... Um, protection. If it's so invasive to what they're telling us, why are we not using this kind of this kind of material? If we prepared years in advance for an Ebola attack, why are we unprepared for a simple cold virus? I, I was really just blown away.
0: Yeah, I was, um, you know, when COVID first dropped, uh, I was running the music program at the airport. And I remember people getting off the planes with like respirators and things like that. And of course, you know, they didn't want people gathering in groups or music program got canceled indefinitely. And that's been ongoing almost two years now, but uh, I was seeing the reaction of like everyday people getting off a plane, like, uh, you know, with the respirators and things like that. But, you know, when it comes down to it, what exactly does this virus do or what, what exactly from your, you saw it from day one to today or up until recently, um, you tell me what your observation of the, of the virus.
2: So from my personal observation, and this isn't necessarily going off of anything that I've seen in the news or stories that I've heard from other people from my own eyes and my own experience. Initially, when we were being told how significant and how severe COVID was, we weren't seeing a whole lot of it at our clinic. We were seeing a lot of people who had flu-like symptoms and we were testing people at our clinic. Um, and we actually, we had to go out of our way to really establish a respiratory clinic um, because we were told that um, all the patients were having to go either to the urgent care or to the emergency department and that family medicine providers should not be responding to any any type of respiratory cases at all, stuffy nose, sore throat, ear pain, sinus congestion, headache. I mean, all of those things, anything upper respiratory, pretty much from the neck to the sinuses, we were instructed we're not supposed to see um, as it might be a COVID case and we could potentially risk infecting healthy people. So being that we have a more remote clinic, we didn't want our patients to have to travel almost an hour to get to a hospital or urgent care. So we worked together to make sure that we at least offered treatment options for our patients there in the town that we're in. And so when before they would come into the clinic, they would have to be triaged by phone. So we started seeing a lot of phone appointments for people who had mild respiratory symptoms. So it would be from, I've had a runny nose, I've had a low grade temperature, I got a, I got a cough. So the first ones that we first started seeing was a lot of cough and runny nose. And so we were testing these people and not a whole lot of people were really coming back positive the numbers that were being touted on the internet and in the news really weren't consistent with what we were seeing. And the fact that Washington state was the first state in the whole country that had a confirmed positive case, I would just think that we would have seen a whole lot more than we initially did. And we were testing a lot of people. And then as uh, the we went from winter into spring and summer, we actually started seeing more people come back positive in summer than we did in the winter, which it really baffled me because common cold viruses usually thrive in colder weather and they died down during the summer. But because people were concerned with every little sniffle or sneeze or sore throat or ear pain, they were coming in and getting tested, which typically, if that was during the summer, you would think, oh, my allergies are flaring. You'd take a Benadryl and you'd be on your way. You wouldn't even think to go to the doctor, but we were testing all these people. And so we had this astronomical number that I'd never seen of colds in the summertime before. And then of course, as the... The Delta variant came around, that's when I actually started noticing a difference between people having just some mild cold symptoms to where people were actually pretty sick. So, um, That was initially what I had seen is that most symptoms were pretty mild, but then even the people who were pretty sick, it was more of a bronchitis or a pneumonia, not anything that you couldn't treat. I mean, we see bronchitis, we see pneumonia, we see sinus infections. Those are things that we can treat in the outpatient setting, so it's not like it was significantly severe. Now, granted, there was a handful of patients who got very sick, some who almost died, um, but for my patient panel, I didn't have any who have passed from covid, but I did have quite a few and those few that were very sick had many 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 underlying medical conditions so for the most part, the people who were positive were really just having some basic cold like symptoms
0: now so you're in you were in the heat of it when before there was a vaccination even available so uh, Correct. And then when, you know, these vaccinations came around, like um, what uh, what, what do they base this vaccination off? I, my my understanding is uh, something based off of SARS-CoV-2. I don't even know what that is, but maybe you can shed some light on it.
2: So it's really just basically, it's the protein of what a virus is. So viruses want to, the, the the way that they thrive is by infecting its host and replicating within the host and then getting the host sick taking kind of like hide they're hijackers viruses are little hijackers they'll go in and they'll hijack the cells and then they'll replicate and then they spread to other hosts and that's how viruses thrive is by hijacking the body's cell um, to to replicate itself so with the vaccines and just vaccines in general what they're supposed to do and i know that for for the covid vaccines there's the 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 big ones that we're dealing with is the johnson and johnson moderna and pfizer Um, but for vaccines in general is they're supposed to take a piece of this virus and they're supposed to give it to, to the host mix up a concoction that makes an inflammatory response within the body so that the body's own immune system will take recognition and will create a memory of whatever that protein was so that it will have its own antibodies to fight off a virus so for the the johnson and johnson vaccine Um, they actually, the vector that they use um, is a recombinant adenovirus. And adenovirus is like, if you've ever seen somebody who has pink eye, but then their nose is super stuffy, That's typically adenovirus. That's just a a type of virus that affects the the upper respiratory, nose, eyes. Sometimes they'll get a little bit of a sore throat and cough because of all the post-nasal drip. So they use a type of virus that affects the upper respiratory, and they put a a protein spike, that's the COVID-19 protein spike, on it so that when it's given to the body, it causes that inflammation response, and it uses that adenovirus as a, a mimic you <laughs> so that it makes your own immune system, because most people have had an adenovirus, it makes their immune system recognize that this virus is bad, so I'm going to attack it. And in so doing, instead of it attacking the adenovirus, it takes hold of this protein spike and then starts creating antibodies against that specific protein. Now, as for, so, uh, I'm sorry, so for the Johnson & Johnson, it's really that the spike is given to the body so that it can make its own antibodies. Now, for the Moderna and Pfizer, it's the mRNA, so the memory RNA uh, that we've all heard about over the last couple of years. And what mRNA overall does not just for vaccines, but what the, what mRNA does in the body is that it really has, um, a, it's a protein production within the cells. So for, it's like a code. If you think about computers, it's a, it's a code that's brought into the cells and then they use it like a, a blueprint to produce this protein spike, and then your body will create a memory to attack that protein spike. So, whereas when our body is being given the spike for the Moderna and Pfizer, the spike is already kind of made for us, and then our our immune system is supposed to be able to create um, antibodies by the information that it's been given.
0: So, is that helpful? Yeah, no. So. I'm I'm trying to put together this. I'm looking it today is February 15th and I'm looking at 1.4 million confirmed cases in Washington and 11,459 deaths in 2 years. And we shut down mm-hmm. our economy. Uh, <clears throat> we put these protocols in healthcare systems where basically you know I I got a need that's kind of barking at me right now and I'd like to get it checked out but I'm I pretty sure they're going to make me uh at some point, have a vaccine required to even get health care. Um, it's gotten a little goofy since the introduction of an emergency vaccine, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, now it's a requirement to basically even be seen.
2: Correct. Um, that is a trend that I've also noticed, and one that has really um, raised some flags with with me within the the medical community, because when it comes down to medical ethics, autonomy is number one. I mean, we are not supposed to infringe on a person's rights to accept or reject any type of treatments, including vaccines, medical procedures, medications. We have to give patients informed consent. So we have to let them know this is what we think is best for you. This is why we think it's best for you. This is what could happen if you don't do it. This could be what what will happen if you do. What do you think? We don't just say you do this or else because that creates a huge host of problems. And holding people at ransom or or coercion that if you don't take this vaccine i'm not going to take care of your knee or if you don't take this vaccine you're not getting a heart transplant we're going to take you off of the list it's really i am very conflicted because it is not right ethically And then I'm in the healthcare system and people look at me, why are you condoning this? I'm not condoning it in the least. And I don't know how to make it stop. And I don't know if I have enough people behind me to champion because every time any of us raise our voices up, we are told our, our license are going to be at risk. You're going to lose your job. You're not going to work in this healthcare field anymore. And we're really being threatened with our livelihood whenever we say something doesn't sound right.
0: What happens when you see things like from John, John Hopkins, uh, basically say uh, the research that they've done on lockdowns maybe save 0.02% of lives. Like when you, when you hear information like that, How does that make you feel?
2: Well, it makes me feel upset. I mean, I haven't seen that study and I haven't read the information that they have, but I've known from the beginning, as soon as they were telling people, so I have, I have a mother who is in a nursing facility And not being able to go and pick her up weekly to go to church or take her to dinner or do the the weekly things that we would do has really interfered with our daily life and hers. She is extremely depressed. There's been people in her residence that have died alone, no family present because of covid because they're afraid that somebody's going to come in with covid and it has the fact that they say that this is saving they're saying it's saving people's lives when really lives are being destroyed and then the number that you just quoted and it's a very small amount that they say actually protected i agree why why are we locking down a nation and destroying families and there's a mental health crisis even before covid and it is it is a dire problem now. And I've seen more people with mental problems because of the lockdown than I ever did before.
0: Yeah. It's, it's terrible to see, you know, people, uh, basically you can't like, even if you, let's say you're quarantining, like here's a real, real life story. Um, I had, a uncle and some cousins that all vaccinated, they still got COVID. They are, right self-quarantining in a, a house they have and uh well one of them gets over it and feels good for a couple of days and goes outside and hugs the neighbor and uh one of the girls sees my uncle do this and freaks out on him and says you could have killed miss joe you know whoever she was and i that's not doesn't seem to be the case here i don't think this is exactly how the virus is working um when i look at the numbers that I'm, I'm looking at right now from Washington state with only 11,000 deaths in two years. Um, I don't know if you've looked across the panel on what other, like what happened to the flu, the flu numbers went comp- like, they almost non-existent. They were gone. Yeah. We didn't have flu last year. Right. So, so you're telling me that, you know, a flu like virus, COVID-19, uh, all of a sudden, uh, that that's the only standard of which a flu is or a sickness is judged by I, f- I feel like there's some fudgery of the numbers um,
2: well and I do
0: want to I do want to add on that that um, there has been documented cases
2: of people who have died of COVID oh, I'm sorry with COVID so they've died from other causes but because they tested positive whether they they went in for a knee injury a back injury car accident um, any other type of injury, but before they're allowed to be admitted to the hospital, they have to be COVID tested. And so they're testing positive. And if that person dies, it's being listed as a cause of death, which you are absolutely right. It does skew the numbers. And I had questions initially about that um, because I had, I had a grandmother who had died from COVID and but she was ni- she was in her 90s and she had a whole host of underlying problems. She could barely walk from her recliner to the kitchen without me thinking that she was going to die. Uh, because she was so short of breath. So the fact that she got a respiratory virus and she died, she could have easily have died from the adenovirus or any other type, a rhinovirus or a different corona. I mean, there's so many different types of respiratory viruses that are out there. It just so happened that that's what she got. And so they listed that as her cause of death. And I was just so mad that she became a statistic because I knew that it was her underlying conditions that ultimately led to her demise. It wasn't that she had died from COVID. She died with COVID. And that is so true for so many other people um, who these numbers, the 11,000 people that you're referring to, how many of those were primary COVID deaths? We don't know those numbers and they've come out and said that that was happening. This isn't something that's hidden. This isn't me making up this information. They came out and said that this, that some of these cases, they don't, they did not discern between what was a with COVID and from COVID.
0: That's crazy. Yeah, people dying in car accidents and are being marked as a COVID death. So of these 11,000, how many were uh, caught the virus and, you know, Died in a hospital on a ventilator or something like that and speaking of which i now th- this is just you know my uneducated observation here but i'm hearing like basically if you're on a ventilator that's that's a wrap like our 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 health healthcare systems killing people putting uh people on ventilators unnecessarily <laughs>
2: You know, I don't have, I'm not a pulmonologist and I haven't had extensive training in the use of a ventilator. So I really don't have a lot of information to say on that. But I do know that I have seen um, some of my patients on respirators who have come off of it. So it's not that necessarily once you're on the respirator, that's it, game over. What it comes down to is a family being able to be an advocate for the patient. A lot of times once they're put on the respirators, in the medical view, most times it is that's kind of it. But if the family's not saying, we need occupational therapy, we need speech therapy, we need physical therapy, we need this, we need that, and then families are being barred from coming into the room. And so patients have lost their. Their voice. They've lost that person who's supposed to be there looking out for them. And once people are on ventilators, a lot of times they're just left there. And even if they do have uh, speech therapy or occupational or physical that coming around on them, to what extent when somebody's on on a respirator? And I watching my patients from afar in their chart notes there really wasn't a whole lot that they were doing. And I could just sit back and pray and say, I really hope that this patient gets off of this because they going into this illness, they were fine. Yes. They had underlying problems, which is complicating things, but, um, please survive patient. It, it, it's really it's sad because you they don't have that person there to help them through and speak to the doctors and petition on their behalf.
0: That's crazy. I mean, I'm just looking at the the numbers and, and thinking about, like, the testing and how the government has basically given out free tests since the beginning. I mean, I was able to get a test at a drive uh Walgreens. And um, I'm looking at the numbers recently of the Omicron variant, and um, they kind of coincide with the testing that was given out by the government. And there was this huge... Spike in cases again, but really, the number of deaths is what concerns me. It seems so low in in, in comparison. One point four million cases in Washington versus eleven thousand deaths. Like it. Correct. S- it seems to me that there may be some uh, false positives in the testing. Uh, I don't. I don't know what you've seen with that. When it comes to the actual tests, I mean today now they're available so- in the store.
2: Right. So some of the things that I've personally noticed um, is not just false positives, but also false negatives. I have seen people who are pretty significantly ill come back negative and then they get tested two days later because they feel horrible and then it comes back positive. So I don't necessarily have an opinion either way because I've seen it both pretty frequently that, um, there, there is an error on both. It's a false positive and a false negative. For example, my son, uh, he was, uh, we had a, all, our whole family had to get COVID tested uh, to do a function. And when I was trying to, his poor, he's six and he did not want this thing shoved in his nose. And he fought it. And because it touched the outside of his nose, it touched the mask, it touched his hand, and it came back positive. And they tried to bar us from the event. And I said, Absolutely not. I said if you're not gonna have a good quality test, how do you know that it wasn't on his mask that you guys are forcing him to wear? How do you know it wasn't on the tip of his nose? So they agreed and let us retest him and he came back negative. And so they threw out that result, but still like at at what point are people receiving these false tests because they're either being done. Improperly, or they're being handled this they're not being handled appropriately it's really hard to say because consistency um if if you're doing a test in a a walgreens drive-through that sample kind of goes through a, a process of being touched by multiple people and vectors and so it's hard to say is it positive or is it not so I I don't know. I'm kind of biased on that. Um, I know that when we do our tests, the only person who touches it is us, and it doesn't go. It goes right from the the sealed sample into the, the patient's nose, into the vial, and it's taped up. It's sent out to the uh, the lab. Now, from what happens when it gets to the lab, I don't know, but I know that there's only one person handling our samples. So I think that for our specific clinic, we do a pretty good job of getting, if, it, if it's positive, it's positive. If it's negative, then it's likely negative. But in regards to testing in specific, we had mentioned the, the flu was kind of non-existent last year. And Let me give you a little insight into that. When people were coming in for cold or flu-like symptoms. Initially, we started testing them for both COVID when we got our samples um, to do the test, but we were also testing them for flu. And within the first couple of days, we received messages from the upper people within our organization that said, absolutely, under no circumstance are you supposed to be testing anyone for flu. At this point, the only circulating virus that we're concerned about is COVID. And we were all floored, even the even the providers who lean more liberal left side. I like to think that I'm more right, that more middle. I like to use common sense. I'm not one side or the other. Um, But even the people who are very staunch in their liberal views said, well, wait a second. Why are we not testing? This doesn't make sense. This is flu season. And they said, do not test for flu.
0: That's crazy. So, this so is this one of the reasons why there is the... no,
2: yes, yes, from one of the biggest medical organizations um, in Washington, we received word to not test any patients who have cold or flu symptoms for flu, only test for COVID.
0: I guess that's our answer to what happened to the flu numbers. Yes. <laughs>
2: A, and me and a couple of the other providers, we would say, how many did we miss? How many people could we have started on Tamiflu or gotten treatment right away? How many people have we turned away? Because we're telling them, if you're having these symptoms, you need to quarantine. And it, it was it's really, it's been a, a bit of a nightmare and a shock to the overall how, how the system works.
0: Um. When we were talking last week, you were telling me that they were even coaching some responses. Can you touch on that a little bit?
2: Yes, so there, and this was before the, the vaccine mandate came down for all of the um, the healthcare workers, and a lot of them were getting vaccinated, but there were still quite a few, I'm, this is just a rough estimate, about 30, 35% of um, nurses, MAs, and any healthcare workers were not wanting to get the vaccine, and so... They sent out a questionnaire asking every employee, why? What are your thoughts? We want to help you. We want to learn from you. We want to understand your questions and concerns in regard to this vaccine so that we can give you a a good answer to, to your questions, and immediately when I saw that, I became skeptical. Call me a skeptic if you want, but I like to question when there are certain things that are coming down. And immediately I kind of had a sense that this questionnaire wasn't for the benefit of of the employees. And the questions or the answers that were given ranged greatly. There was like a top 10 and it went from there hasn't been enough research into the vaccines, to uh, the vaccine itself is so new. We don't know the side effects. We don't want to be used as a guinea pig. And so on. am even down to I'm concerned that the vaccine is the mark of the beast. And so what this organization did was they created a, a script, per se, that came out about two months after the questionnaire so when I actually saw the script I just chuckled and shook my head because I was like I knew it I knew that there were were more intentions more uh, sinister intentions with this questionnaire it wasn't for the the benefit of the employees it was for the benefit of the organization and so they had come out with this script that was rebutting every single one of the employees concerns and almost verbatim, of what or how a provider or a healthcare provider in general is supposed to respond to patients who have these questions and concerns and a lot of them were really mocking and almost making it look like if you had a question in regards to the vaccine that you you are ignorant it's what it the the how it came off to me and i just I had to sit there and think for a second, why in the world would they give us a script to talk to patients instead of giving them genuine answers? And the only thing I can come up with is that they didn't want genuine answers. They want everybody vaccinated regardless. And even in regards to the vaccine um, and just treatments in general, I was starting to feel guilty as a provider that we have these sick patients and there's no treatments available and so i had reached out to the upper administration and said we're a big organization why can't we do any case studies on doxycycline on ivermectin on azithromycin on decadron on any medications that we use on a regular basis, why can't we do a study on these to try and help some of these patients who are sick and get some research done? And I didn't get any response back for a couple of weeks. And then there came an email, not just to me, but to every provider within this organization that pretty much listed the medications that I had inquired and said, under no circumstances are you to use or make the patient think that these are allowed to be used for treatment of COVID. And then a couple of weeks later, this organization came out saying that they were um, doing testing on vaccines. And being sponsored by Moderna. So I figured out why. You're telling me you're, you're to... telling me
0: the studies are sponsored by the, the makers of the vaccine? Yes. That's crazy. Yep.
2: And when I got my answer about why we weren't doing treatment studies, it became starkly clear that the reason why we weren't allowed to do treatment is because they wanted to focus on vaccines versus treatment.
0: Seems like they're looking for objections in that survey to you know, manufacture this script and what you're saying, like if you even question the vaccine, you're ignorant. Um, Well, that's the narrative on the street too. Like I'm unvaccinated. I chose to not be just because of my deep belief in uh, your body's natural immunity and and other things. Um, Right. You know, I've wrestled my whole life. And when you're on the mats and sweating on top of each other and uh, with the mask on, you know, I mean I don't see how that's that's stopping anything. And on top of that, like I mean, uh people in my community, um, it sounds like you you, you train a little too, judo, yeah? Yep, uh judo and
2: jujitsu.
0: Right on. So we're all in the same breath here. Uh mm-hmm. it's 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 hard to you know, based off my own science of continuing to roll, to continuing to put myself into you know, social situations like baseball games, concerts, things like that, and still be here without even the sniffles or anything, um, it makes me question a lot of things as well. I mean, I've got uh, one set of grandparents that is vaccinated and one set that's not, and they're both doing just fine. So uh, it makes me wonder, you know, like, hey, is... If you contract it, maybe I mean, there was a time, I want to say, in uh, February or January of 2020 where I was really sick. Um, And it had a lot of the similar symptoms that, uh, you know, the the vaccine had. And it was almost a cartoonish amount of, like, (laughs) snot. But um, I've never had it in my life. And then afterwards, you know, then we hear the lockdowns and then the vaccines. I'm like, well, I don't know. I I seem to be fine. And I might have already had it. And if I was, right. and if I was to choose an option on my own, just cause of, you know, the hippie green diets and, you know, supplements and stuff that I've taken, you know, for most of my life, it tells me like, I might want to consider, uh, an alternative, uh, instead of, you know, something that was emergency use created in a lab. Right. You know, why can't I have that option? Why can I have an option of not taking it? Why can I, have, you know, if I do contract it using something else like zinc and vitamin d to get over it i don't know
2: right no and there are a lot of uh, naturopaths and i actually reached out to one and said what is your treatment protocol what are you doing to offer some type of treatment for patients because as a family medicine provider i'm being told there's really nothing you can do take not even to the point where don't tell them to take ibuprofen just take Tylenol. Well, there's not, everybody can take Tylenol and ibuprofen works fantastic for headaches and muscle aches and inflammation, but we were told initially in the beginning, don't treat them. And so we were all sitting back, what are we supposed to do? So I reached out to a naturopath and I got her protocol. And that's actually what I started telling my patients, Hey, this is recommended by a naturopath that I know this is what she's treating. And so if you want some more Natural approach to treat your cold-like symptoms, whether they were COVID positive or not, I would give them that information, and almost everybody felt good on the the regiment because they're they're good natural supplements anyway.
0: So, um, do you believe that the alternative therapies work just as good as getting the vaccine?
2: Um. Well. I don't, I don't have the data to to say yay or nay on that. I do know that I myself, I I ended up getting vaccinated, but it was more so at the behest of my husband. Um, Didn't want to get it. I got really sick after the vaccine, but then it kind of put me in this really interesting position where I could say when when patients ask me, are you vaccinated or what are your thoughts? I could still give them some information that yes, I got the vaccine, but here's what I want you to know before you do it, or if you even start to decide. Whereas most providers would just tell every patient, yes, you need to be vaccinated. So um, I was in this position where I felt like I was almost pressured into getting the vaccine. And so I didn't want my patients to feel like they were pressured. So first and foremost, before you make your decision, you need to make a decision for what you want, not what I'm telling you. I'll give you information to help guide you, but at the end of the day, I'm not telling you yes or no. Um, So I had the vaccine and Within so I got it in March, April, May, June, July, August, five months after I had the vaccine, I got my antibodies tested to see if I was in a good range because they were telling me for work that it was a requirement if I wanted to stay employed. I had to get a booster. And so I looked to see what my my antibody load was. And it was six times higher than what they recommended for immunity. So I was thinking to myself, I don't need a booster. Why do I need a booster if my levels are six times higher than what they say is good? Well, two weeks later, I ended up getting COVID and I got extremely sick, even though I was taking the um, the protocol that the naturopath had, had given me. So I, I had the vaccine and I was using the protocol and I was still pretty sick. But again, I have underlying problems. So um, it's hard to say if that's what was the, the driving force under why I got so sick, but, um, the amount of antibodies that they want, I don't understand how they're getting the numbers because everything is still being studied and being, being that I had six times higher, what do they want? A thousand times I don't get the number. I don't understand what they're looking for. And so for me to try to tell patients, if you want less symptoms, get vaccinated because that's what the data says. Well, not necessarily because more anecdotally, My husband also got COVID after he had the same vaccine and he was really sick too. So, and he took the same naturopath protocol with the zinc and vitamin A and D and E and the airborne and lemon. Like we were doing everything that we were supposed to do and we still got pretty sick and we were both vaccinated. And I've seen a lot of patients who are vaccinated who are just as sick as people who are getting COVID for the first time. The ones who I'm seeing who aren't as sick are the ones who have had COVID before and didn't get any additional treatment. So even the ones who um, got monoclonal antibodies, because that eventually became a treatment, um, I noticed that, one, they felt a little better. They still were pretty sick for a while. But within months, they were positive for COVID again because they didn't let their immune system create immunity, so they were not immune. They were relying on these monoclonal antibodies. So they got COVID again because it stopped their immune system from being able to do its job.
0: Interesting. It kind of seems to me like, I mean, for one, the mandates that have come down on like people, for example, like police officers, first, you know, healthcare workers, first responders, EMTs, even, you know, like having to get the yeah. jab, otherwise you gotta vacate your job. I mean, there's a lot of that that happened, Um, and now it's coming down to the private sector. And I mean, Nike just fired a bunch of people just last month, and um, you know,
2: Carhartt even. What's that? Carhartt even. Yes, they started making it mandatory.
0: Yeah, and that's not that's not right. Um, You know, especially when I've got myself, uh, my co-host I do my show show with. um, Neither of us are vaccinated. My grandparents aren't vaccinated. And then, um, you know, I, I kind of sh- shared a personal story with you over the phone about my sister. And um, she has um, factor five Leiden and uh, basically was told that she is at higher risk if she gets the uh, COVID-19 virus for blood clotting in the future versus if she just gets the jab uh, now. And from what I see, the side effects are exactly that blood clotting so how does that make any sense
2: it it, honestly it doesn't and what they're trying to say uh, is that if you were to get the virus your risks of clots are higher because the viral load will be higher um, versus the, the mRNA or the spike protein that will come from that. So you, there's still a risk of a clot regardless of if you get COVID versus if you get the vaccine. It's just to what extent. Now, personally, I think people who have a clotting disorder um, shouldn't take a vaccine or any medication that's going to put them at a higher risk for clots. So patients who have atrial fibrillation or have had DVTs or pulmonary embolisms or the factor or homocysteine complications, I mean, there's there's so many different types of clotting disorders that, um, that people have. And there are medications that we tell them that they probably shouldn't use because of the risk for clots and the fact that even though there's a risk for clotting with the vaccine and they're still telling people that doesn't matter take the vaccine anyway because you could get a clot with covid it just blows my mind that they're not using that as a standard that if you have a risk for blood clots you probably shouldn't take this but here are some precautions you can take to help decrease your risk of developing a clot. So I I don't honestly when we when we spoke the other day and you told me that it just blew my mind. They should be focusing more on your sister's condition and actually treating the the risk of her having a clot in general than promoting a vaccine that could also cause a clot for her.
0: Right. Could kill her. You know and and it's funny, so before I got on the phone with you, I, I I was uh, just kind of tooling around on YouTube a little bit, and I actually found, it's like the first hit um, about, uh, let's see, what does it say? Side effects, immune reaction, and thrombosis risks. And uh, I'm going to try a little bit of technology here. We just did an upgrade on the show here, so let me see if you can hear this. Okay. I'm going to play this. I'm not going to play the whole thing, but uh, when they get to the juicy part, I'll turn it off.
1: Okay. Okay. Vaccines are turning the tide, but they're not without risks, especially for women. There've been rare cases of blood clotting, even fatal ones, leading some governments to slow down vaccinations. We have now today chosen to continue our vaccine rollout without AstraZeneca. But each delay puts more lives at risk as the coronavirus spreads. It's a balancing act between speed and caution in the fight against COVID-19. The risk of dying from COVID is much higher than getting a blood clot from a vaccine. But even more concerning is a new report from Oxford University that shows catching the coronavirus puts you at even more risk of a deadly blood clot. In a moment, we'll talk to a vaccine scientist at Johns Hopkins University. First, this report.
0: AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vector vaccine has... So of- I'm just going to fade out right there. But th- that, that's basically the gist of this video is like, and it sounded to me exactly what my sister was told at her, at her, mm-hmm. at her uh, appointment. So I don't know if the research was done on YouTube, because that's the first thing I found. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounded exa- well, exactly like that scripted response you're talking about.
2: Yes, and it really is a scripted response. Now, like I said, when you have a higher viral load and your immune system can't compensate quick enough to kill a virus, um, it does, what happens when you get sick, and one of the reasons why people get the fevers and the body aches and where they feel like every joint hurts is because there's a a response within the body called the cytokine storm which is a massive inflammation response as your body is sending an all call signal to your immune system to try to fight this virus so as soon as they figure out what's wrong it's like they're saying all systems activate everyone try to fight this and so it causes this huge cascade of inflammation throughout the body now when that inflammation happens, it can cause some damage to blood vessels, which can cause clots, which is why there's a, such a concern when you get a virus versus a, a vaccine. But again, there has been documented cases, and even the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was pulled because there were so many cases of blood clots that were happening. So it, the it still can happen where the... You get a blood clot regardless of if you have the virus versus the vaccine. So um, I think really that's what that study is trying to say in in that aspect. But what I do have to say um, is, again, if you have a patient who has a known clotting disorder and you're making a recommendation to give them a treatment that could increase their risk of developing a clot, that is not good medicine.
0: So... If someone wants to go on the on the, the path of natural immunity, you mentioned getting antibody tests. And like it, mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like I mean, based off of what they said the, the recommendations were and what you actually had, it sounds like they don't even really know. But if you wanted to know what your antibody tests were, where would you go get a test? Like outside of a hospital.
2: So you could go to your primary care provider. Honestly, there are basic tests just to screen for your own, and like if you've had COVID, Um, but honestly, I don't know how good those tests are because I've seen some patients who had a great immune response. I mean, they got sick like they're supposed to. They had their their fever. They had their body aches. They were sick for their five to seven days, and they recovered just well. And that's typical of when you are sick for that duration and then you recover well is a good indication that your immune system did its job. It created antibodies so that it can screen. If this virus comes back, I'm going to be able to protect myself. And so we're doing the testing and people are coming back with no antibodies. And I'm like, wait a second. No, that's not true. So either the test that they're giving us is not an adequate test or this person didn't have a good immune response or it wasn't COVID. So I am a little hesitant, but that, that test is available. It should be available through your primary healthcare provider.
0: Right on. Um, you and I also talked about, uh, the potential of, uh, having the need for a vaccine to get treatment. Um, that seems to be like a real case scenario. And, um, I, I, is there anything that you can suggest as far as like? I believe we talked about no vax uh, uh, tr- uh, treatment centers and things like that.
2: You know, I I see where it's going, and it kind of scares me, frankly, because. In my opinion, we shouldn't be vaccinating children. And if we're going to say that children need to be vaccinated to have any type of treatment, we're putting ourselves in a huge problem. Um, Ethically, if they're going to refuse care to a minor because they don't have a vaccine for a virus, that is not likely will not kill them i mean the the pediatric deaths is so low it's it's almost undetectable we had one in lakewood and the, the news tried making a big deal about it yes. but at the very end of the the article it had said that this child who was under 10 had multiple underlying illnesses well that's pretty rare i mean most kids are healthy so um of course trying to push a narrative that oh, my goodness, my kids are going to die of covid. But no, most kids do relatively well. And their symptoms are as if they had a little cold. So um, it, 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 the concern about pushing a vaccination in order for treatment is going to create a huge ethic war, honestly. And I don't know how this is going to end. Well, <laughs> I do not see it ending well.
0: No, I, I think I, I don't I, either.
2: Yeah, so on- honestly, um, I've I've um, decided to resign from my position within this big corporation because of all of the, the things that I have been seeing. And I'm starting to look elsewhere, whether it's like my own business or getting in with another provider who has a small company, um, just for medical freedoms, so that I can talk to my patients without a script, so that I can educate them on the actual science. And science just means knowledge. Like the, the word conscience means with knowledge. And to try and push a truth that is not truth is not science. That's an agenda. And I cannot willfully sit back and tell my patients a canned answer when I know that there's no science or knowledge behind it. It's a guess there's no truth. There are things that are not adding up. And that makes me a poor health care provider. So, I mean, unless more healthcare care providers start standing up and saying we're not going to take it anymore, nothing's really going to change. I mean, there's a mass exodus of nurses. Um, and suddenly they're crying. We have a crisis. We have too many patients. The hospitals are overloaded. But actually what's happening, it's not that the patient or the hospitals are overloaded. It's They have a certain ratio of patients they can have to nurses and they don't have enough nurses. And so that puts them at max capacity, not room-wise, but staff-wise. And so they've generated this healthcare crisis by firing 30% of their work base and then trying to say that they have so many COVID patients, they don't know what to do. That's not what happened at all. They got rid of their nurses and they created a crisis for themselves so that they could say crisis.
0: So self-inflicted wound is what you're saying?
2: Pretty much, pretty much.
0: Kind of like what this whole thing uh, seems like. What do we got to do to uh, change healthcare, in your opinion? I'll, I'll leave you with that final thought and your whatever final thoughts you got.
2: Well, it, I mean, it comes, it, honestly, we have to get good admin. We have to get, first of all, okay, there's, there's lots of first of all, too. That's a loaded question, honestly. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I mean, we have to have providers who abide by medical ethics. It's not just medical ethics ethics are fluid and they change as circumstances changes. No, medical ethics should be our moral compass for how we treat patients. And when that medical ethic is violated, as a whole, the healthcare provider should stand up and say, this is not right. And we have administration who are trampling all over, not just the patient's rights, but the provider's rights, the nurse's rights. And everybody is so afraid to say anything that People are saying nothing. And so there, it, it's hard because it has to come from within. There has to be people who are willing to stand up and say, you are wrong. And I think that the people at the top, the administration who are, are caving to government mandates they need to be held accountable and i think those people need to be fired and we need to get people in the leadership roles and the admin roles who are really champions for the healthcare providers and for the patients it, it comes down to money and power and corruption at high levels
0: is there anything you can anything the audience can do like an individual what what should they be doing to to fight back on on these mandates and this corruption
2: you know that's really hard i mean same thing i mean maybe ask their their own personal healthcare provider why they're okay with the government mandates and ask them from a true heart like unscripted i don't want to know what you were told to tell me i want to I don't want a canned answer. I want the truth from your own mouth. So really each patient holding their, their healthcare provider accountable, and if enough people ask, I think that it will really start pricking the hearts of their providers and make them actually question, why am I doing this? Am I doing this for, for consistency or, or for, for comfort and for security of my own job? Why am I doing this? Why am I saying these things that I know in my heart of hearts is not true? So I think if the listeners ask their medical providers, why are you in agree, agreeing with these government mandates and how does that line up with medical ethics and ask for a true answer, I think that that can start to change the minds and the hearts of their primary care providers.
0: I think it's about freedom of choice and right to try. You know, basically what the, this country is founded upon, freedom of choice, and it uh, includes medical freedoms as well. Um, right. It's, it's unfortunate we're in this pl- space, but hopefully uh, enough of us will bark and we'll see some significant change, not just in the healthcare system, but in how it's managed by uh, the government and within. There's a lot of corruption, right. it sounds like. I mean, you're, I'm pretty alarming things about... Uh, scripted answers and, and basically uh, marketing surveys on how they should respond to uh, uh, objections their patients are giving them. That's just seems ridiculous. Like it's just, a,
2: Absolutely. just
0: to fall into the narrative.
2: Right. And those objections include religious. When people have religious objections, there's even a canned response for that.
0: That's unbelievable. Well, I appreciate you sharing your story and, uh, uh, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, love to have you on. If uh, catch up with you in your new career, moving on from the corrupt healthcare system into hopefully something that's a little bit more forthright and honest. So yeah,
2: well, thank you. I appreciate you uh, reaching out to me and having this conversation and this dialogue. It really helps um, get the word out and gets people asking
0: questions. Absolutely. But thank you again for joining the show, and uh, hopefully we'll catch up with you real soon. Thanks, Melissa. All right.
2: Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Well, that concludes another edition of the Totally Corrupt podcast. Make sure you're following us on Getter and on True Social. At Totally Corrupt is our handle. And with that, bye-bye. Have a great night.